John Lamantina is a contributor to Forbes magazine, where he's one of the world's thought leaders in healthcare journalism. John was the president of Pfizer Global Research and Development in 2007, where he managed more than 13,000 scientists and professionals in the United States, Europe, and Asia. He is the author of Drug Truths, Dispelling the Myths of R&D, and the recently published Devalued and Distrusted, Can the Pharmaceutical Industry Restore Its Broken Image? John is also a senior partner at PureTech Ventures, one of the U.S.'s leading VC firms investing in early-stage biotech. John, pleasure to see you. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. You spent the better part of a decade working at you know one of the top-level leading pharmaceutical companies. Now you find yourself investing in biotech startups and writing about the industry for Forbes. How do you think the industry's changed since you left? When I started in the industry back in 1977, uh, it was an industry that was based on looking for drugs to treat large masses of people, uh, drugs to treat hypertension or uh, high cholesterol levels or uh, diabetes, uh, and even drugs for depression. It's now changed quite a bit uh, such that companies tend to be investing in disease areas that are more narrowly focused, where clinical trials tend to be smaller and more rapidly accomplished, and where favorable pricing will exist. So I'll use my former company Pfizer as an example, which, as I said, when we started was largely doing work in neurosciences, uh, metabolic diseases, arthritis, depression, cardiovascular drugs, uh, and anti-infectives as well. Now, Pfizer focuses on vaccines, oncology, rare diseases, and immunology and inflammation. Totally different portfolio than just about a dozen, 15 years ago. Do you think that's because that's where the science is leading us, John? I think that's part of it. I think also as part of it that there are good treatments for lowering plasma glucose or lowering lipids. But cardiovascular is still the highest killer in the world, basically. But Lipitor, one of the things you worked on, mm-hmm. is generic and it's free, essentially. So yeah. what would, you know, if you, we look at the market failure of PC, CSK9, sorry for my friends at Amgen, but the reality is, you know, it's not selling, even though it does work moderately better than Lipitor, but the fact is Lipitor is free. So you now have hit into a whole nother uh, area <laughs> of uh, that's changing the industry, and that is the role of payers. Sure. The PCSK9 inhibitors, and for those who aren't familiar with them, these are drugs, biological drugs, that can uh, enhance the uh, effects of something, a statin like Lipitor. I take Lipitor myself. I have high uh, LDL cholesterol without it. Keeping and, it in the family. Too. Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. And uh, and so it'll drop my uh, uh, LDL cholesterol to about 95, which is below the recommended amount for somebody with no outward example of heart disease, but in my case, a family history. If you have heart disease, however, the lower you get your uh, LDL cholesterol, the more likely you are to prevent getting heart attacks and strokes or second heart attacks and strokes. And the PCSK9 inhibitors in combination with statins can drive one's uh, LDL cholesterol down to about 50 and even lower. And then the companies that developed them, Amgen and then the combination of uh, Sanofi and Regeneron, showed uh, with very expensive studies, billion-dollar studies, that the combination of those two reduces heart attacks and strokes, period. So if you're somebody who has heart disease or had another heart attack or, or, or survived a heart attack, you may want to have not just your statin, which, as you said, is dirt cheap and now generic, but you may want to have a PCSK9 inhibitor as well. Unfortunately, 
those drugs are expensive and payers have made it very difficult for patients and then physicians to order them to get access to these drugs. So you saw it as a commercial failure. The commercial failure is not necessarily due to the failure of the product. The product works. Product works works pretty well, but the uh, payers are now playing a role in who can get these drugs and who doesn't. And that also occurs in Europe in Europe, you have single-payer systems. And so they, when the government's involved, they behave much like payers do, uh, insurance companies do in the United States, and will reduce access as much as possible to keep costs down. You mentioned Europe, and obviously part of the reason why we got to know each other here was discussing and having some back and forth about the Trump reference pricing proposals, which are going to base U.S. pricing theoretically upon European pricing. Given your experience in R&D, what do you think will happen if we start using artificial rent controls or price ceilings? We've been speaking about Medicare Part B plan dropping $15 billion. We've been done some preliminary work in Medicare Part D. We're looking at $70 billion. I mean, these are huge numbers. I mean, oh. from your perspective, what would that have done to your team at Pfizer and your ability to do your work? Oh, uh, look, here's the a very simple reference point for people. Biotech and pharmaceutical, not biotech to a certain extent, but certainly uh, big pharmaceutical companies will invest 15% of top line revenues and some companies even more into R&D. You limit top line revenues, you limit the amount of money that goes into R&D. So even if you take a company uh, like uh, Pfizer that invests $8 billion a year in R&D, if their sales are hit by a factor of 10%, you will get almost a billion dollars less invested in R&D than the $8 billion that they would normally do. So you don't simply cut a couple of programs to get a $1 billion cut in your R&D budget. You've got to cut basically research sites, you've got to cut out whole therapeutic areas, and then you've got to cut out 1,000 jobs. And what Pfizer also does, and increasingly we're seeing this, they use their free cash flow to develop partnerships and sign marketing sure. agreements and deal with a lot of the aspects of their future pipeline, not necessarily as a, from an R&D perspective, but also from a strategy perspective. Well, look, venture capital companies uh, invest in the biotech field because they think they can make a significant profit. Otherwise, they wouldn't be investing their capital. But they're also taking risk early. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. All, look, all of this is, is taking early risk. It's interesting when people calculate, and Tufts Center for Drug Discovery and Evaluation up in, uh, in the Boston area periodically uh, calculates the cost of developing and bringing to market a new drug. And they put the cost at about $2.5 billion per drug. Now, half of that, about $1.4 billion of that, is the actual cost that goes into all the R&D that's necessary. But another $1.1 billion is attributed to... financing. Yeah, you're going to take this amount of money and just have it sitting idly for 12 to 15 years, not making anything where any... Anybody who does anything with money will say, that's stupid. Let me take that $1.1 billion in, in five years, have it be worth $1.6 billion. Yeah. Stuff. These are early investments and high-risk investments. And everybody knows the story. For every 10 compounds you put into the clinic, only one makes it on the market. And you can't predict which one. And you can't say, oh, just pick the right one. That'll make the most money. Uh, there was the- a Dutch study from the Public Health Authority that basically said, if we reduce revenue, then the industry is only going to invest in successful products. I, yeah. I, it's like, oh, that's it. So that's that's yeah, problem, it was that easy that, that easy. Uh, we would we would all be doing, <laughs> doing that. It's like a baseball player if if uh, you know they only succeed one out of every three times. Uh, well, okay, so only swing at the pitch you know you're going to hit. Then you don't have to worry about the other two. Uh, it's kind of stupid. The uh, President's Council of Economic Advisors in February of last year, 2018. There was a chart that looked at the profitability by region. I don't think a lot of people read that. What it showed was that about over 80% of the global profit now 
is being driven by the United States alone for the industry. So the U.S. is becoming more and more important globally. It's becoming the center of revenue. The IPI obviously is one way to try and force pricing up in Europe, but the reality is the U.S. is still the dominant market. Do you think they'll be able to raise pricing in Europe? I don't know what the current administration or any administration for that matter can do to go to Europe and say, well, you know what, we want you to pay more for your drugs. That I think would be pretty challenging. The second thing that you probably have is that when American citizens see this, they're saying, so wait a second, all the profits these big and unfortunately thought of as negative pharmaceutical companies are getting are off our backs. That's not fair. We shouldn't be paying more than what they're paying in Europe. So tying it to IPI doesn't solve any real problems in my mind. All we'll do will be to take away money that these companies make. And by the way, the the other thing that people have to realize is there's this thought that Pharmaceutical companies are these big, rich, lavish uh, companies that are making money hand over fist. The fact of the matter is, if you look at all the data, all financial data that measures uh, the economic health of an industry, the pharmaceutical industry isn't the most profitable. Not, they they uh, don't have the highest sales. They're not getting high, highest rate of return on investment. They're probably at about the middle of the pack. So there's, I don't think real gouging is occurring here. Is, can it be successful? Yes, but not all companies are successful. But it's not an industry that's just wallowing in money and can just turn around and say, okay, fine, uh, we'll take less profits uh, going forward. There's a consequence. If you take less profits, you will get less R&D, period. And I will we'll react to something else because I've been in public meetings where people have said, you know, these companies will claim the sky is falling and there'll be, you know, it'll, there'll be no innovation if we cut prices. Well, there's not going to be no innovation, but there's going to be less of it. And depending on how much you control the price, a lot less of it. And it's sort of ironic at a time when we've science continues to break on almost a weekly basis, new insights into this disease and that disease. A time we should be doubling down on investments in R&D. And when we start implementing some of these policies that are being proposed, is going to be far less money to invest in. And then there's another point to all this. I think the biggest challenge we face going forward from a healthcare perspective isn't cancer. We may not cure cancer in the next decade, but certainly we're getting to more and more people whose cancers are treated and are put in remission. But we are getting to a point where a cancer diagnosis won't be a death sentence. It'll be something that you'll have to manage with the drugs that'll be coming out over the next 10 or 12 years. There is nothing like that for Alzheimer's, nothing. And the Alzheimer's population is only going to grow because as you make progress against heart disease and cancer, like people get people older. People live longer. And, and Alzheimer's yeah. is a disease of the aging. Furthermore, though, it's not an easy area to invest in. Look, 260 failures in a row now? Well, well, independent of the number of, of failures that occur, if you come up with a drug that you think could work, you have a hypothesis and you think by blocking this certain pathway or eliminating a certain protein that, that you can reduce Alzheimer's disease, you've got to run a study for five or six years at least in patients to find out if your drug is actually causing a slowing of the progression or maybe even reversing the progression of these. Those studies will cost, and I'm not using the number to exaggerate, a billion dollars per study. And so companies are saying, yeah, there's a great need and we should be doing this, but there's so many failures and this has been a very hard area to invest in. The, the ideas, there's a dearth of ideas right now. And so rather than invest in Alzheimer's, which I would argue is the one place everybody should be investing, we're going to invest in other things, things that are important, be it uh, a rheumatoid arthritis or Parkinson's disease or something like that. But 
the big one is being avoided because companies are going to be, have limited amount of, of money to invest in R&D, and uh, they're going to pick their shots uh, on areas where they think they can get a quicker and better rate of return than they will in what's been the death valley of Alzheimer's drugs. Yes. However, the system as it currently stands does provide an impetus for an investor to try and move into Alzheimer's, even though we've had 200 and I think 62, as I mentioned earlier, 262 failures, there will be a 263rd trial and it will be funded because there's such a medical need. And this current system works that way. Do you think if we actually put these revenue controls that what you're saying then is that Alzheimer's is going to go away for research. It's already going away. Yeah. So most of the big companies have curtailed their investments in the neuroscience area and specifically in, in the Alzheimer's disease area. If you look at the number of clinical trials, there's, there's got to be maybe 5% of the number of clinical trials that may be looking at Alzheimer's drugs as opposed to cancer drugs. That's just the facts and the way it is. And when you've got more constraints on your revenues and more demand to deliver on your R&D uh, investment dollars, you're going to try and invest in things that have a higher a chance of success and less requirement to invest a billion dollars just in the clinical trials to show that your drug works or not. So you get to go for other things. Are you familiar with Jack Scannell, the analyst who used to, uh, well, he used to work for a consultancy, now he's at I, the UBS. I've, I've never met him, but I, I know who he is. Yeah, I've read his stuff. I think Jack's great. We have Moore's Law in the semiconductor industry where productivity doubles roughly every 10 years. Jack realized that... Um, industry's productivity is having every 10 years. So he came up with Earroom's Law, yeah. which is Moore's Law in yeah. reverse. What do you think we need to do to sort of increase that productivity? What does the industry need to respond and how do they manage that? Well, I, th I think the example I gave with Pfizer before and how they've reshaped their portfolio is, is no different than what other companies are doing. Uh, when you invest, for example, in rare diseases, and by the way, this is an important area to do research in. Uh, there are many rare diseases. There's absolutely no treatment for people. Some of these cause people to die way too prematurely, many as, as children. And uh, a lot more is being learned about the causes of some of these diseases. And if you look at, at a drug to treat a rare disease, what inevitably will happen will be uh, you have... There's nothing really to compare it to. So you can run a clinical trial in patients versus placebo for sometimes a relatively short period of time to show that you're enhancing uh, the life of, of these patients. And the clinical trials for rare disease are only two or 300 people as opposed for a new lipid-lowering drug that would be 20,000 people. people yeah. uh, they tend to be shorter in length. And then if your drug is adding real value to the system, and by value I mean these people not only live as a result of your new drug, but they become contributing members of society. They're not costing the healthcare system tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands of dollars to provide care for it while they're alive. Uh, you can get a really favorable price. So a, it's still risky. You still have got to do the work and show that you have something that works. But at the length of trial is short, the number of patients is short, the cost involved is short, and pricing can be favorable for that. So many companies are going into that, that area. Looking back at some of the value questions that are around price, in both the Medicare Part B reform, the IPI of the Trump administration, as well as the litany of proposals we've seen come out of the House over the last two weeks, there's a move to quality, quality adjusted yeah. life years and using ICERs and things like that. Do you think that's the right approach? Do we need to start putting in some sort of HTA health technology assessment in the United States? Oh, I think, yeah, I do. And here's the reason. You need to convince people of the value of your new medication. And interestingly enough, I wrote a piece with a friend from Harvard uh, a few years ago about this. For those who don't know quality, a quality adjusted life years, basically uh, a year of a good quality life that your drug might provide. 
Interestingly enough, and I didn't realize this at the time before we wrote the paper, the FDA use, has used quality in the past to justify various changes they've wanted to make. So when they wanted to make certain changes in, in how produce was handled to prevent E. coli infections, or if they were uh, wanted to make new modifications to cigarette labels to enhance the warnings, they've had to get congressional approval for these things. And so as part of the number they would use for their life-saving change would make, or a saving to, to healthcare, they use quality numbers on the order of two hundred or two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. Boy, the industry would love that. <laughs> Boy, you guys would take that number in a heartbeat. Absolutely. Yeah. In, in the UK, in the UK, it's only fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, thirty five thousand pounds. pounds. Yeah, yeah it's about fifty thousand dollars a year. Uh, now you could argue that a US life was worth more than a UK <laughs> life, I guess. But but uh, but but again, that's the original question. Yeah, I think you really need to have something that you can hang your hat on to say, look. Uh, this drug is going to save uh, this many lives or and it really enhance the quality of life of these people. It's not going to just improve you. It's not a cancer drug that for $100,000, you know, allows Gives you, you live, four months. Four or, months. Yeah. You're going to get at least five years out of this and that's worth just in terms of these quality, uh, half of billion dollars or something like that. So I think in order to translate the value of a drug, something like that's going to be necessary. But I, I can just only imagine congressional hearings on how to appraise a value of a, of a life and, oh, <laughs> and various people. Oh, uh, trying to is explain. it the life of an immigrant or a life of a natural yeah, born or, U.S. person, et cetera? Or, so it, it, it'll be a, a, quite the circus. Or, yeah, or you're, you know, sort of quality math to a, someone who doesn't, you know, probably manage to balance their checkbook very well. <laughs> but one of the things about quality, though, if we look at, say, Savaldi, no matter how you measured Savaldi, it was an economic benefit because it solved the disease, it cut out liver transplants in the 20% of the patients who presented who then didn't respond to impegulated interferon. But yet it was still controversial, John. And yet this thing uh, worked. So uh, we had the quality so, numbers. We had the evidence. So here's the irony. Before the hepatitis C drugs that came on board, people were treated with a, a battery of drugs, including interferon, over the course of a year. And, and and as you mentioned, it only worked in maybe a third or 40% of the cases. But yet, when you were taking that therapy, you felt like you had the flu for yeah. a year. So you felt like, and by the way, the cost of that therapy, including other treatments, was $105,000 a year per patient. So now uh, Gilead comes out with a drug with a list price, list price of $84,000. Which no, virtually no one was paying. Nobody pays anyway. Yeah. And in fact, was a cure in 12 weeks' time, and the headlines were made, not that here's a pill that cures hepatitis C in three months. It was the new face of pharma, the $1,000 pill. And that was just ridiculous. Now, let's take this a little bit further because competition is a tremendous thing uh, in healthcare. And when people know about competition, which they do, uh, which happens in drug pricing all the time, but not necessarily on hospital care costs. <laughs> but, but So Gilead was out first, but within a year, AbbVie came out with their hepatitis C cure, and then eventually Merck came out with one, and that had competition. That drove the prices down such that I remember hearing Steve Miller, who was the uh, CMO of one of the health insurance companies, announced at a meeting that we were paying less less now for hepatitis C drugs in the United States than they were paying in Europe. Because of the higher volume, that's Be right. Well, yeah. well, no, not because of higher volume, actual list, actual prices, because in, in Germany it was $65,000 a year patient, in the UK it was fifty five. but they negotiate the price from a countrywide basis. The insurance companies were able to bid, get lower prices, I'm going to say it's probably on the order of forty-eight dollars or $49,000 at yeah. that stage, for the same system that they were paying here. So you were actually paying less in the United States. So I guess maybe if we did reference prices and we were paying it more was in Europe, maybe we can raise the price <laughs> from what the European yeah, uh, price I'm, would be. I'm sure that'll go through. I mean, the yeah. UK government cut a deal with Gilead for quite a quite a low price. I think it was 15000 with the idea of pure eradication. They were trying to yep. actually get rid of it. 
Australia did the same thing. Uh, and now what's happening, and this is also doesn't get a lot of play, in the U.S., some states are negotiating with these companies what they're calling the Netflix model. Mm-hmm. We'll give you all of our patients in the state of Louisiana at a, at a price of $5,000 a patient. And those deals have been taken up by these companies. So, so you're talking about now what was $84,000 a year, not a bad price, not a $5,000 a cure. You've got to be kidding me. But that story doesn't get told all that often. No, it doesn't. And I think a lot of people misunderstand the pricing, how it actually worked. But I've heard people say that it was immoral, literally saying yeah. a, a cure. They were complaining that the company was immoral, John. Whereas, whereas the previous treatment, which wasn't as good, was 25% higher in cost. Yeah, and that's perfectly <laughs> fine. I, I know, it's crazy. Yeah. Ten years ago, there was a lot of discussion around adaptive licensing, adaptive reimbursement, flexible reimbursement, et cetera. And that sort of went away. In 2017, the Trump administration housed a meeting with all the pharmaceutical heads. And it looked like Commissioner Gottlieb, who hadn't been appointed yet, it seemed like they were framing a deal where we need to get Medicare pricing down, both B and D. But we also know that 11 years is too long. We want to work on the regulatory side, too, to help you folks out. It seemed like they were trying to work on some sort of grand bargain. And then that's all that talk went away. Sure. There have been all sorts of schemes that are that are coming out and they, they, they rise and fall. I think one of the issues around, you know, the 11 years of patent life somebody gets is if anybody proposed something that would extend the patent life of, of any company's drug, I think the public would go berserk. There are already enough bad examples, in fairness to those who critique the industry, of companies trying to, having a compound that's coming off patent, and they come up with a newer version, maybe a once a day versus a three times or a day. Or changing the delivery device from a... Yeah, you know, yeah, and then suddenly having a new patent on that, and then not making the original stuff anymore available, and, and trying to force people onto newer, more expensive things, which really is unconscionable. But unfortunately, there are some examples of that. But that's, in any industry, you've got some bad actors, and hopefully you deal with the bad actors as opposed to punishing the whole system. But I don't see anything that would allow longer patent lives coming. coming but would a flexible reimbursement, we're coming in earlier, maybe at a lower price, but then, you know, as the evidence gets better or worse, then you can act, the pricing can go both ways. Yeah, I think that's a problem too, because there have been examples of uh, companies that have gotten very early approval on their drugs with the phase four or phase, late stage phase three programs data still pending where the earlier data looked pretty good where once the full data came out the drug didn't work anymore and then people were upset that they paid for something that was ineffective and exposed them to to another thing so I, I'm not one who favors the early and, and let's use Alzheimer's as an example there were drugs that were going into the late stage Alzheimer's pr- trials uh, that had shown uh, that they were reducing a certain type of plaque in the brain and say wow this is going to work and had that type of a policy been in place, millions of people would have gone on those drugs early on. And then about a year or two later, it would have turned out that never mind, it didn't really work. So I think in fairness and working and trying to gain the public's trust, you really need to have your drug approved based on a full complement of data and not, oh, it looks good. Let's approve it now. And then we'll come back to you because we're sure it'll work. What single change do you think we need to make right now? to get around a lot of these issues. If we're, I think we both agree that these IPI proposals are going to be devastating and are actually going to kill the U.S.'s lead that we have right now in biotech. What do you think needs to happen? I think, and this will go against the grain of the industry I've been a part of and supportive of, I think that the people in this country think there's a basic unfairness that all these insurance companies could negotiate a price and that Medicare and Medicaid can't. I think that we probably should be going in that sort of a a direction. If that's the case, then I think states and 
and the governments will feel that they're at least getting a fair deal on things like that. That will, however, decrease the investments, the revenues that a company will get, and in turn, decrease the investments. But uh, given this, there is one, one issue that Bernie uh, Sanders and Donald Trump agree in, and that's drug pricing. And so at some point, something's got to give. And if you're already letting certain parts of the healthcare system negotiate for prices, then maybe Medicare and Medicaid should do the same. So if you're not getting your price, then with Medicare, do you walk away? That's an interesting question. I'm not close enough to those kind of discussions to know how often that might occur. Certainly, I believe it was with a muscular dystrophy drug, Vertex, didn't allow it, or maybe it was multiple multiple sclerosis, I'm sorry, multiple sclerosis drug in the UK. Vertex didn't get its price, and as a result, didn't launch it in the UK. So that could happen. Now, having said that, I find it hard to believe that a price wouldn't be found with Medicare Medicaid that hasn't been found for Cardinal Health or, uh, or CVS Health or anybody like that. Vertex, you brought up Vertex. What's been happening with Vertex right now in the UK with their uh, cystic fibrosis drug is they can't come to an agreement. Again, looking back at the idea, one of the motivating factors of the IPI is to try and raise prices in Europe. So Vertex has been sticking to their guns and saying, look, we're not going to raise this price. And now the UK government is threatening them with a compulsory license yep. to take their IP. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you think that that's... Can uh, how, it go that bad? So, so well, oh, I don't, I don't doubt anything that could happen in any country. So, compulsory licenses already occur in parts of the world, like India. It's interesting how, as a country, India is proud to say how modern they are and how a lot of uh, jobs, jobs in the U.S. get outsourced there. But then, when it comes to paying their fair share of a price, claim poverty, and so we can't afford these things, and we'll basically appropriate the intellectual property, and that happens in other places as well. Coming back to the hepatitis C drugs. Uh, Gilead was aware of this, and so they basically gave away their patent in India and Egypt uh, because they knew it would just happen anyway and, and felt, well, let's just, let's just take the high road here. But with a country like the UK doing that, you got to be kidding me. But I wouldn't pass anybody for doing something like that, especially when the industry has a better reputation. This bad company is not letting our patients who have uh, cystic fibrosis access to this drug. So we have to take care of patients in our country. So we're going to just appropriate the patent. Give me a break. <laughs> right? So yeah. uh, it, you know, it's just ridiculous. And so there's where the US government can start saying, hey, look. We're paying the backbone of all this. Why don't you do your fair share and, and come to a pricing agreement? Certainly, Vertex has come to a pricing agreement with other countries in Europe. Why not the UK? Putting your VC hat on, final question, what do you think is going to be the next big area of breakthrough? Where do you see the next innovation coming from? Oh, I think, uh, I don't think there's one area uh, you can name. I think across the board, you're going to see a lot of areas coming forward. I think some of the big concerns that we all mentioned Alzheimer's, we probably should also mention infections and the Armageddon of the worry of a infection that's not treated by current antibacterials with resistance growing so much. I'm not as worried about that because I think you can put a concentrated effort and do some things there that uh, while you might have a problem over a five or six year period, you could avoid that. You could eliminate that with uh, some focus. I think companies will continue to invest in areas where they can get a, a very good return. Oncology is pretty big right now. The rare diseases, the drugs of the immune system are all pretty big areas. And I think you'll continue to see uh, research flock to things like that. John, thank you very much. For Thanks for having me. This, is, this has been great. 